1979, a Laotian immigrant arrived in the United States as a political refugee. Being skeptical of government agents, Nakoni refused to give them his last name. One of the custom officials wrote in the blank the word unknown. Today, a lot has changed for Nakoni. He's now a restaurant owner in Mississippi. But his legal name remains the same, Nakoni Unknown. He, his wife, and his kids make up the unknown family. Well, as Luke chapter 4 opens, Jesus is a, basically an unknown. He's on the threshold of his ministry. After being baptized by John, he returns to Nazareth. He settles down in Capernaum. He begins to work miracles and cast out demons and challenge tradition. And suddenly, the whole nation is abuzz about Jesus. You see, he begins chapter 4 as an unknown But by the end of chapter 5, he has become a household word. Chapter 4 begins, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. I'm sure he was. The baptism of Jesus was really a turning point in his life. At his baptism, the Father in heaven affirmed Jesus' identity, then filled him with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' credentials were filed, and his potentials were filled. John 3, verse 34, tells us that Jesus received the Spirit, quote, without measure. All the power, all the spiritual gifts were given to Jesus. Nothing was withheld from him. And though his portion was unique, the principle is common to us all. For Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. As an example to you and me, we also need to be led by the Holy Spirit, not by our own directives or in our own energies. And look where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus. Look at this. Right into the teeth of temptation. Understand, it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus did everything right. He was in the Spirit, yet he was still tempted by the devil. Apparently, God grows us strong through resistance. Spiritual resistance training builds spiritual muscles. God uses temptation to make us stronger. Verse 3 tells us, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. What was the first temptation? You might be tempted to say, command these stones to be made into bread. But not so. The first words to Jesus out of the devil's mouth were, if you are the Son of God. You see, as a Christian, everything begins and ends with my identity in Christ. If I know who I am in Christ and what I have in Christ, then I can beat back any doubt and untangle any confusion and work my way out of any discouragement. But if Satan causes me to doubt my faith, if he causes me to question my position in Christ, he's got me in his pocket. He can use that uncertainty to steer me any way he pleases. 
Even Jesus needed to be certain of his spiritual identity. And this forms the basis of this first temptation. Satan tries to badger Jesus into proving that he's the son of God rather than relying on the father's testimony at his baptism. Here he's tempting Jesus to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. But Jesus answered him saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now food in and of itself is not a sin, obviously. We not only like to eat, we need to eat. Especially after you've fasted for 40 days here like Jesus. But this is how Satan tempts you and me. He starts with a legitimate need for food, for friends, for intimacy, for sex, for money, for love, for attention. It's a legitimate need. And he tempts us in an illegitimate way to meet that legitimate need. You see, you resist temptation by believing that God will meet your need in His way, at His time, by His word. And how do we know God's ways and God's will? Jesus quotes scripture here. That's what tells us. He says, it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Real deep down, soul satisfaction isn't found in our pantry. It's found in God's pantry. That's why we need to trust him. Well, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All his authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, All will be yours. Remember, though, this was Jesus. God had already promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world. You remember the angel told Mary that he would sit on David's throne. The temptation here is to have it now. You see, if Jesus bows to Satan now, he can have the authority. Without the weight, without the pain, Without the cross, the temptation is, you can have it now. And this is how Satan tempts us. He offers us shortcuts. Sex without the strings of marriage. Rewards without the hard work. Privileges without the responsibility. And again, Jesus answers Satan with scripture, verse 8. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. This time, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He's always quoting scripture. Well, then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, every morning, just before daybreak, a priest would climb to the pinnacle of the temple, and he would look eastward to the rising of the sun. When the sun peeped over the horizon, the priest would then sound the trumpet. The doors of the temple would swing open, allowing the waiting worshipers to then stream into its sacred halls. But what if Jesus threw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple just at the right time in front of thousands of worshipers? What a way to jumpstart your ministry. Satan was a marketing genius. 
No doubt about it. What an idea. It just wasn't God's idea. You see, the Father sent the Son not to be a show-off, but to be a servant. To capture the hearts of men and women, not with stunts and with theatrics, but with truth and with tenderness. But Notice what Satan tried to do with this last temptation. He too starts quoting scripture. Notice this. He says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Hey, Satan is Mr. Twister. That's his name. Understand, he's a master at making the Bible say whatever he wants it to say. He takes the text out of context. Satan is good at that. But Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, the verses that Satan had quoted were both psalms. They spoke of protection, not presumption. Hey, God will come to your aid as you go about doing His will. But God doesn't let you use Him for your own selfish reasons. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. God is nobody's stooge. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so understand this temptation. Legitimate needs... Shortcuts around God's will, wrong methods, can all become temptations. We learn to avoid them by knowing who we are in Christ and by knowing God's Word. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Notice the battle isn't over, is it? Satan is defeated. He sloughs off to lick his wounds, but he's going to try again later. Remember, Satan is persistent. He waits for the opportune time when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're a little frisky. Hey, beware. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. You know, work a miracle or two and the word gets around. There was great speculation now surrounding Jesus. Just who is this man? Teacher? Prophet? Magician? Politician? Or perhaps, could this man be the Messiah himself? Questions were swirling around Jesus as he returned to his hometown. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Notice this. It was Jesus' habit to go to church. It was his custom. Synagogue was a priority. And if it was a priority to the Son of God, don't you think it should be a priority to us? We're told, and he stood up to read. Often a visiting dignitary would be given the privilege of reading the Scripture in the synagogue. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. We call it Isaiah 61. And Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Have you ever wondered about God's will for your life? What his intentions are for you? What does he really desire? Well, in these two verses, Jesus declares his intentions for your life. He brings good news to those who lack. He heals people who have been inwardly hurt and emotionally wounded. Have you been wounded? Jesus wants to heal your broken heart. He unshackles people who've been locked up in addictive behaviors. He opens the eyes of people who've been blinded by doubt and by lust. He frees folks who've been beaten up and trapped in their own bitterness. And he does it today. I love how Peterson paraphrases verse 19. He says, to announce this is God's year to act. In other words, all that I've listed, I've come to do today, right now. And then he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could hear a pin drop. And you know why? Everyone knew that what Isaiah had written was a prophecy concerning the Messiah and what he would come to do. Would Jesus ascribe this passage to himself? Or would he ascribe it to another man? Well, then he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here is a definitive moment when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He says, What Isaiah spoke of 700 years earlier, I am applying to myself today. And rest assured, it still applies even today. These are still Jesus' intentions for our lives. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. You know, the crowd, they heard these things. They wanted these things. Oh, to to have healing for a broken heart. To have sight for blind eyes. Oh, to be set free from my bitterness and these bruises. They longed for what Jesus offered them. That is, until a few skeptics in the back spoke up. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Hey, wait a minute. This is nobody special. This is just a carpenter's boy. And Jesus said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. This was a popular proverb of the day. The modern day equivalent might be, Familiarity breeds contempt. Ever heard that? Folks sometimes are too proud to admit that their former peeps might have special status, might actually be favored by God. It was as if they were saying, oh, we were in the same third grade class at Nazareth Elementary with that guy. He's nothing special. Isn't it amazing how people often lift themselves up by keeping other people down. That's what they were doing. And that's why Jesus answered them, verse 25. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath 
in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. In other words, in both instances, Israelis were too proud to go to God's prophet for help. There were, there were lepers in Israel. There were hungry people in Israel, but they didn't go to the prophet. They were too proud. And yet God was so determined to heal and to feed and to bless that he went outside the borders of Israel to find people humble enough to bring their need to God. Thus the widow in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian. And you know tonight, if God can't find a person in Barrow County who wants his help, he'll go to some strange land like Loganville or Athens or Jefferson to find somebody who's willing to humble himself and desire his help. Well, verse 28 tells us, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Often the truth will make you mad, won't it? And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. On our tours to Israel, we'll we'll often go to the top of this precipice, It's 44 feet above the valley below. It's a pretty steep drop. And the intentions of the townspeople were to push Jesus over the edge. But, we're told, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. It was a miracle. Hey, the same Lord who parted the Red Sea, here he parts an angry mob. Verse 31, then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Capernaum was a fishing village on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was the home of many of the disciples. It served as Jesus' headquarters there in the Galilee. And Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbaths, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. You know, the rabbis would often appeal to other rabbis, but Jesus would declare, Thus saith the Lord. He spoke on God's behalf. He spoke with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons knew who he was. Now notice, Jesus doesn't pick this fight. It's the demon who's annoyed by Jesus. And this is why I often question these preachers who are always chasing demons. They're always trying to pick a fight with the devil. Did you know that if you shine the light of Jesus, you won't have to search for demons? (laughs) They'll find you. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. You know, today demons may behave in more sophisticated ways, but they're just as real. And Jesus has power to rebuke and cast out demons. Then they were all amazed and they spoke among themselves saying, What a word is this? 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. You know, how Jesus evicted this demon impressed the Jews just as much as the fact that he did. At the time, Jewish exorcists would roam around the countryside using all kinds of bizarre techniques to cast out demons. One technique was to hook a ring in the victim's nose and to try to pull the demon out. Other times they would recite these wild incantations. One other method was to place the victim in a basin of water and then try to splash the demon out of him. Here's what amazed the Jews. Jesus just spoke the word and the demons obeyed. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. Now, this Simon is later renamed. Anybody know his name? Peter. You're right. And note, Peter has a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife. And this is a mega problem if you're a Roman Catholic. Because the Catholics consider Peter to be the first pope. That means you got a married pope. That's a mega problem. But you see, Peter's problem was that his mother-in-law had a high fever. Luke uses the Greek word megas. It was a mega fever. Perhaps it was a case of malaria. Verse 39. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. What a miracle. A mother-in-law who serves rather than expects to be served. Amazing. The Greek word translated rebuke literally means to muzzle. Some of you might want to muzzle your mother-in-law. Here Jesus muzzled her fever. And notice again how she responded to her healing. She served. You know what? I think whenever a person is healed by Jesus, their immediate response is to want to serve him and to serve others. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Notice Dr. Luke. Luke's a doctor. He notes that Jesus healed various diseases. He wants to make sure that we understand he wasn't just a specialist in fevers. He was a general practitioner. He healed all different kinds of diseases. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus shut up the demons for two reasons, by the way. One was for crowd control, and the second was because he didn't want demons in charge of his publicity. Now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And I think this is interesting. Jesus here models how to stay spiritually fit. You've got to get away from time to time. You've got to spend some time with the Father. You've got to get alone and get in the Word and spend some time in prayer. There's no shortcut. Even Jesus himself, he got away from the crowds in order to stay spiritually fit. 
And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Notice, if you don't set your own priorities, other people will. They came to Jesus and they wanted him to come here or go there. And he says, no, I've spent time with the Father. I know where I've been sent. I'm to go to these other cities. Hey, people like to turn their crisis into, into your emergency if you let them. You've got to be careful. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to these other cities also. Notice this. Jesus understood the musts that God had placed in his life. Are you following the commands of God or the demands of people? Are you focusing on your musts? There are a few musts that God has commanded you. We need to take care of those musts. Well, one Sunday morning, two men had skipped church to go fishing. And after a few hours, one of the fishermen He started feeling guilty, and he confessed. He said, Charlie, I guess I should have gone to church today. I just don't feel right about it. Charlie answered him. He said, Clem, I couldn't have gone to church anyway. My wife's homesick in bed. Well, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus goes to church, and then he goes fishing afterwards. He takes his disciples fishing, and he gives them a new mission. He sets for them new musts, new priorities. And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Another name for that lake, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a pear-shaped freshwater lake There in northern Israel, it's 14 miles long by 7 miles wide at its widest point. It's interesting. Luke here calls it a lake, the Lake of Gennesaret. You know why? You know why he didn't call it a sea? Because Luke had sailed with Paul on the Mediterranean Sea many, many times. He knew what a sea really was. To Luke, it was just a lake. But Matthew and Mark, they were landlocked Hebrews. To them, it was a sea. At the time of Jesus, the western or the Galilean bank was the most populated area. The plain of Gennesaret, or or it's called today Nafgenazar, ran down the western shore of the lake. This was the Jewish side. Cities like Magdala and Gennesaret and Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, they all dotted the shoreline. The people who lived there, they were eager to see Jesus, and they came out in droves, so much so that he was pressed up against the lake. And Jesus saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. You know, the good fishing was at night. These guys were actually done for the day. They were just cleaning up, getting ready to go home. But then Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. This boat actually became the stage on which Jesus taught a Bible study. 
to the crowd that was assembled on the bank. You know, it's interesting, in 1986, in this very same area, there was a severe drought in Israel. The lake's water level was at an all-time low. And two brothers, their names were Moshe and Yuval Lufen. They found a boat that was protruding out of the mud. These were members of a local kibbutz on the western shore of the lake. They found this boat. It was unearthed. It was preserved. It was put in some solutions and preserved. This boat is 27 foot long. It was 8 foot wide. They did tests on the boat, and they dated it to the first century A.D. It could have been, we don't know for sure, but it could have been the very boat, Simon's boat, from which Jesus taught. There's no way to know, but the kibbutz calls it the Jesus boat, and it's on display today there in Israel. Well, verse 4 tells us, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Hey, Simon, let's go fishing. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. You think Simon was skeptical? I think he was. He basically says, Lord, we've tried. We've fished the best spots at the best time. They're just not biting out there. And yet if Jesus wants us to cast our nets, we'll humor him. You know, Simon was content to follow Jesus as long as he was teaching and talking about Scripture and about spiritual things. But fishing, that was Simon's domain. He knew about fishing. He was the fishing expert. And Jesus is doing it all wrong here, according to Simon. This is the wrong time. This is the wrong place. This is the wrong depth. Simon isn't so sure he wants Jesus telling him what to do when it comes to his area of expertise. It's like the husband who took his wife fishing. Later he said, he said she did everything wrong. She was too noisy. She used the wrong bait. She had a bad cast. She reeled in her line too slow. And she caught more fish than I did. Well, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish to the point that the net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Imagine all the hooting and hollering out there on the water between these pro fishermen in these two boats. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Notice Simon's reaction to this miracle. He humbled himself. Jesus, you're the expert, not me. You know what you're doing, not me. Hey, Peter caught a school and he went to school. Jesus climbed into Peter's boat to prove that he was the Lord over all of life, not just fishing. You know, you think you've got your marriage wired or that you're good at business 
or that you're an expert parent. But one day, you catch nothing. Your nets are empty. And Jesus tells you to throw those nets in another direction. And suddenly you realize that you're not the expert after all. And this is certainly true when it comes to fishing for men. Jesus used this thrilling event to give his disciples a new mission. Rather than catch fish from now on, they are to catch men, catch souls. And here's what you learn quickly in ministry. You can toil all night without a nibble. You can waste your time and you can burn yourself out on your own ideas, on your own initiatives. Or you can quiet yourself and listen to Jesus and then toss your nets out at his word. What a difference it makes when you follow his instructions. Well, Verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. From now on, they'll fish a world instead of a lake. And they'll use worms. Instead of worms, they'll use the word. And they'll fill a church, not just a boat. They'll fish for men. And they learn next that they'll fish for the most unlikely of men. For it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now now understand, leprosy was the AIDS of the ancient world. It was a dreaded disease, incurable It was often called the living death. It began with a brownish spot on your skin. The spot became a nodule. Then it became an ulcerated sore. Then before long, it ate away at the tissue, and gross deformities occurred. Leprosies turned feet and fingers into nubs. It produced nostrils without noses and sockets without eyes and throats without palates that could only make gurgling sounds. And this didn't include the social abandonment that occurred. The leper became an untouchable. He was forced to live in the colony. No one could risk contact with a leper. You know, the Jews believed that it took an act of God to heal leprosy. And thus, for this man to ask Jesus to heal him, he was expressing his belief that Jesus was God. Verse 13. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. No rabbi would come within six feet of a leper. In fact, the rabbis would throw rocks at the lepers to keep them at bay, but not Jesus. Notice this. Jesus didn't have to touch this man to heal him. He could have just spoken the word. But he touched him to show him how much he loved him. He healed his heart as he healed his body. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. Leviticus 14 sets out the procedure to confirm a leper's healer and grant his forgiveness and welcome him back into the community. And Jesus wants this man to be restored completely, holy, and to be reunited with his family. Well, verse 15 tells us, 
However, the report went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Notice again, as his public life broadened, his personal life deepened. He spent time with God. Rather than spread himself too thin, he, he stayed rooted. We need to follow his example. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now notice there, this seemed to be a special time where, where healing was, there was an opportunity for healing. You know, there seems to be seasons when healings become more prevalent. God's power is always available to heal. But there are windows of opportunity. And this was one such moment. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Obviously, the fire marshal was absent here. There was no handicap access. The place was a madhouse. It was packed to the gills. The only way to get this man to Jesus was to bring him up on top of the roof and then sort of tear away the thatch and the tiles and lure him down. Well, what if you were the homeowner? How about a little impromptu skylight in the living room? The only way to get this lame man down was to lure him through the roof. But don't miss the lesson here. There's a lot of people who can't get to Jesus on their own. This man was blessed. He had determined friends who brought him to Jesus. Maybe there's somebody in your life you need to bring to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, notice whose faith? Not the lame man's faith. The faith of his friends. Their faith. He said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I'm sure this was a real letdown to the man's friends. His obvious problem was his crippled legs. But Jesus looked past his physical need to his real need. You see, the spiritual need is always the real need. So what if this man can walk if he walks all the way to hell? More than functional legs, he needs a forgiven heart. Jesus forgives his sins. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All the religious folks, they were quick to pick up on this. In Judaism, only God can forgive sin. Either Jesus was God, or he was a blasphemer. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk. Both took the hand of God, did it not? Jesus is about to heal in order to prove that he can also forgive. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise. Take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he'd been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. I'm sure he was. 
Notice the faith of his friends got him to Jesus. But it took his own faith to receive the miracle. And Jesus gives this fellow an impossible command. Picture this in your mind. Imagine a quadriplegic. Straight from Shepherd's Spinal Clinic. He's in a wheelchair. Someone has to comb his hair every morning. Someone has to feed him at every meal. Suddenly, Jesus says to him, Arise. Pick up your wheelchair and walk. You say, Say what? Jesus' command here is all about willingness, not ability. He has no ability to do this. But is he willing? And here's what happened. As soon as the man expressed that willingness, as soon as the man believed, in the microsecond that it took for his brain to fire off the nerve impulse to reach his legs, in that millisecond, God did a miracle. He strengthened the legs so they could obey that command and that willingness. But notice, God's power wasn't unleashed until the man believed. And that's what happens. That's how it works in our lives. God works once we believe. Verse 26, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Indeed they had. Well, after these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Now understand, tax collectors, they were hated by the Jews. They worked for the Romans. They were traitors. The Romans had three taxes. They had a poll tax, they had a ground tax, and they had an income tax. In other words, they taxed your right to exist, your right to eat, and your right to work. And these tax collectors, they worked on commission. Anything over their quota, they pocketed, so they always charged an excess. Reminds me of the three men that were sleeping in a farmhouse. There was a Hindu, there was a Jew, and there was a tax collector, IRS agent. Well, the room only had two beds, and so the Hindu volunteered to go sleep in the barn. Yet when he walked out into the barn, he saw a cow there, and he... he, Return, he told the other two, he said, man, it's against my religion to sleep with a cow. I've got to have one of the beds. That's when the Jew volunteered. So he went out to the barn, but there was a pig in the barn. It was against his religion to stay with the pig, so he came back into the house, and he said, hey, I've got to have one of the beds, because I can't sleep with a pig. So finally, the IRS agent, he went to the barn. A little while later, there was a knock at the door. They opened the door, and there stood the pig and the cow. Anyway, Levi was a despised tax collector. And yet Jesus added him to his family. Verse 28 is amazing. It says of Levi, So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now whether this was the first encounter that he had had with Jesus, we're not sure. Levi must have known something of Jesus, but it wasn't much. What was it, though, about Jesus that attracted Levi, that attracted this hated tax collector, so that two words were enough? Just two words, follow me, changed his life forever. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. 
And their scribes and, their, and the Pharisees, they complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, in the ancient world, to eat with someone showed acceptance. To two people to pull from the same loaf showed a oneness between them. The Pharisees felt that they were better than other people. And they enjoyed highlighting the contrasts between them and others. Jesus was better than everyone else, but he enjoyed emphasizing the commonalities between him and other people. Jesus never lowered the bar, but he loved people. He was real. He was genuine. And it's interesting, even the worst sinners warmed to Jesus. I've heard it put, life is all about bridges. It's all about bridges. Which ones to build, which ones to cross, and which ones to burn. Jesus builds bridges. Pharisees burn bridges. Many of the sinners join Levi in crossing the bridge to Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus answered the Pharisees and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to save people who recognize their need to be saved. As we've said before, there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys. We're all bad guys. We all need Jesus. He's the only good guy. But do we admit our need? Well, then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. You know, fasting, it heightens our spiritual awareness of God's presence. Jesus' men didn't need to fast because God was present among them physically. When Jesus leaves, then they'll have a reason. And they'll have time to fast. The Pharisees questioned the fasting of others, but it was their fasting that needed analysis. It was really just a hollow ritual. It was just an empty tradition. And Jesus answers them by exposing the dangers of all tradition. He says, then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. In other words, put a new patch on an old pair of Wranglers, and when the patch shrinks, the jeans will tear. Likewise, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But put new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Again, you put new wine, if you put new wine in an old brittle leather wineskin, then when the wine ferments, what happens to the to the leather. It bursts, it breaks. This wine is spilt out and wasted on the ground. And this whole talk is about tradition. You see, over time, Judaism, like all religions, had become an old wineskin. It had stopped supporting God's work. It had become an interference to God's work. You see, religious structures grow unbending over time. They lack the flexibility to move with the new work created by God's Spirit and by God's grace. Here's what I mean. God included Gentiles into his family. 
but Jewish religion excluded Gentiles. God's goal is to inflame love in our hearts. Religion's goal is to enforce law, not love. God is into heartfelt worship. Religion insists on days and duties. That's what worship is about to religion. God says obey Jesus. Religion says obey religion. God is creative in all he does. Religion forms a rut. You see, to follow Jesus, you can't be stuck in religion. As a people and as a church, we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, not following some religious dogma. We should always value flexibility, not formality. Well, in verse 39, Jesus proves how well he knows human nature. He says, And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Isn't that human nature? The human tendency is to resist change, even when change is for the better. Here's the true adage. There is no growth without change. There is no change without loss. And there is no loss without pain. That's why initially any change, even a change that's good for us, is initially painful. Remember the seven last words of a dying church. We always, we've always done it this way. <laughs> we can't be afraid of change. Let's avoid the rut and let's be open to the movements of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your words tonight. We thank you for speaking to our hearts. We pray you'll continue to bless us as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.